the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt is sponsored by the Marquardt Law Firm and does not attempt to solve your individual legal problems upon the basis of information contained herein. Instead, contact an attorney to discuss the specific facts and circumstances of your unique situation. The views and opinions of this program do not reflect the views of the Salem Media Group. It's time for Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Todd Marquardt, attorney at law in Texas. If you're a millionaire or a thousandaire, Talk Law Radio is now on the air. Call in with your business law question, your elder law question, veteran aid, Medicaid, build a business to get paid. 210-308-8867. Or ask a question online at marquardtlawfirm.com. That's M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T lawfirm.com. And now, it's Talk Law Radio with Todd Marquardt. Welcome to Talk Law Radio. I'm Todd Marquardt. Today, we're going to be talking about one of those hidden legal issue blind spots of uh, elder law, the law that applies to older people. And today, specifically, I'm going to be talking about Medicaid, not Medicare, Everyone over the age of uh, 65 qualifies for Medicare, even Bill Gates. It's the sole requirement for qualifying is your age. But for Medicaid, that's a program that determines qualification based on your assets and your income. And I recently went to an elder law conference in Abilene, Texas, and learned a few things Uh, some things I was just reminded about, and it was a good chance to collaborate with some fellow elder law attorneys. And I wanted to let you know what I learned. And so I'll be talking about elder law and Medicaid today. And if you're listening on Sunday afternoon, you might want to tune in on Saturday mornings at 11 o'clock in the morning on 9.30 a.m. or 6.30 a.m., broadcasting simultaneously at 11 o'clock in the morning on those stations. And, of course, always you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, podcasts everywhere, or TalkLawRadio.com. You can search my archived episodes at TalkLawRadio.com. Okay. Well, let's get started, but let's uh, begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the gifts and blessings that you give to us. Please forgive us for our sins, for our mistakes, for doing the wrong thing or failing to follow your will. Please help us uh, learn about elder law and Medicaid so that we can help our friends and family members get the care that they need and qualify for programs so that the state can help pay that high cost. We pray all these things according to your will and in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's time to discover your legal issue blind spots by listening to me 
talk about the law on the radio. There's a few things that go into Medicaid. Uh, One is preparing applications. Two is filing and monitoring those applications. Three, I'm going to talk about some unique circumstances when the Medicaid applicant is married. Four, I'm going to talk to you just a small bit about children's Medicaid. So I started this program saying this was elder law, but uh, we've discovered that there are ways to help families with children qualify for Medicaid to pay for their health care as well. Also, what we've been noticing with the influx of immigrants across our southern border, there are some unique border issues that we've discovered. And I'm going to talk to you about supported decision-making, which is just a topic that came up while we were talking about Medicaid. Then I'll talk to you about the Medicaid Estate Recovery Program and all the different professionals that might be involved in a Medicaid case, including non-lawyers. And I'll just mention briefly a few times how collaborative the elder law community is, Uh, attorneys helping each other. It's not something that other practice areas are familiar with. Uh, Some attorneys in litigation and personal injury are quite antagonistic toward one another. Uh, Even though we're all competing for the same clients, we tend to be collaborative in nature. And then I'll give you some tips about what to do after you qualify for Medicaid. So going back to the beginning, uh, preparing a Medicaid application, there are a few ways for you to get that done. One is they have an app that you can get from your favorite app store. It's called Your Texas Benefits, and you can submit your application through the app. Uh, Most attorneys uh, I talk to don't do that because uh, a couple of reasons. One reason was there was a period of time where there was a black hole that received all of those applications. The people submitting those applications uh, never got notified that they were received. Uh, The agency, Health and Human Services, never acknowledged that they received those applications. And then when it it really got bad, um, they said, we don't know where those applications went. Another reason is it's difficult to work with after you submit something. You don't really know that it's been submitted many times, and it's not user-friendly. The things that you do send um, tend to get jumbled somewhere in cyberspace, and you end up having to send all of the supporting documents again via another route. so that the Health and Human Services Commission uh, workers receive what they need. So that's one way. Another way is to fax everything in, and another way is to mail it in. Uh, Some people probably do walk it into the Health and Human Services local uh, agency 
office, um, but attorneys aren't tending to do that very often. So a few years ago, uh, the agency went paperless, and so everything has to be turned into an electronic file. And I don't know if this is the case anymore, but there was a, an office in Midland that was responsible for digitizing all of the paper documents that were submitted to the agency. And then when the caseworker gets a new case, they see everything on their computer screen. They don't actually get a paper case file. And then a few years after that, they they changed the way that they were training caseworkers. I know this because uh, I had hired a caseworker from HHSC, and I learned that um, instead of learning all the regulations and policy, the caseworkers simply learned how to uh, enter the data into the system, and then the system would uh, approve or not approve the applications. So if you're denied, uh, there's an appeal process. Uh, you can do that yourself, or you can hire an attorney to help you. Uh, the reason attorneys got into this business is because it's so complicated. Back in the olden days, uh, when my mom was a Medicaid caseworker, she said they would sit down at a table and discuss the case directly with the applicant. And they don't have time to do that anymore because they're overworked and understaffed and there's no relief in sight. So the caseworkers try and process these claims very, very quickly and sometimes errors or mistakes are made and we have to go to an appeal hearing and get it cleared up. Some of my clients have told me they don't want to have to appeal and so they hire an attorney to do it right the first time. And even if we do everything right, we still might have to go to an appeal because of the errors that are created by working too quickly and on, on the HHSC side. <laughs> I hope attorneys aren't making errors. Anyway, so you can submit your application, but then you have to also submit supporting documentation for every question on the Medicaid application, there's a document that you have to submit to prove the answer, all the way down to the name, birth date, and photocopy of driver's license that proves all of that information is correct. So many times we're submitting more than 100 pages of documents and we have to break that up into different packages if we're faxing it. Um, but if we're mailing it in, of course, we just mail a, a small ream of paper. Now, the statutes and the regulations say that Medicaid must process the application within 45 days. Um, but ever since COVID happened, uh, that deadline has not been met, at least on the applications that I've been filing. And so uh, many times it's taking up to 90 days, and we just have to keep trying to push the information to the caseworker so that the case can be completed. 
So we have to monitor that application, and sometimes the caseworker will send a 1020, which is the form where they ask for additional information, and many times that's bank statements, or or it could be the same documents that you submitted the first time that somehow got jumbled in cyberspace or went to some black hole. You just have to be prepared to submit it again. Okay, so that's all about the Medicaid application itself and filing and monitoring the application. Now I'd like to say something about spousal cases uh, where you have a married couple. Uh, the terminology is this. Um, the, the person that's applying for Medicaid that's going into the nursing home, they call that person the institutionalized spouse. The spouse that's healthier many times staying at home is the community spouse because they say that person lives in the community because they don't live at the nursing home. So back in the 70s, people were getting divorced in order to get qualified for Medicaid. And the Congress at the time passed a law called the Spousal Impoverishment Act, which is to prevent the community spouse from being impoverished. So the government will allow the healthier spouse to save some money to pay for things that are expensive, like fixing the water heater, the roof, or the foundation for the home. They're allowed to save some money, and that that would be above the $2,000 mark while their, their ill spouse goes into the nursing home and qualifies for Medicaid to pay the largest part of that care. Next, I want to talk about income. When Medicaid is evaluating whether the applicant qualifies as to the income component, they look at the name on the check. So the institutionalized spouse's income is used for qualification purposes, but they also need to know if the community spouse is earning income. So because there's this other rule that allows the community spouse to divert some of the institutionalized spouse's income to the community spouse. The state of Texas has come up with about a $3,700 minimum monthly needs allowance for the community spouse. They want to bring the community spouse up to $3,700. So let's say the community spouse is earning $2,000 and the institutionalized spouse is earning $1,000. In that case, the institutionalized spouse's $1,000 would go to the community spouse for a total of $3,000, and then Medicaid would pay the entire cost for the institutionalized spouse. There are times when both spouses go into the nursing home, Um, I've helped a a couple a time or two where the wife was uh, going into the nursing home and the husband was healthier but wanted to be with his wife and so we were able to get the, the wife qualified for Medicaid and in some cases the husband was able to private pay In other cases, we were able to get the husband veterans' benefits. That only works if 
one of the spouses was in the military. Uh, in in this case, uh, that was the case um, for spouses where neither was in the military. That option is just not available to you. Okay, um, there are some issues that come up with a married couple sometimes when the the married couple might this might be their second marriage or third marriage and maybe they have children from previous relationships whenever we start spending lots of money on medical care uh, sometimes there's uh, children or stepchildren in the family that um, start to get worried that all of their parents money is going to be spent and maybe they'll be left picking up the cost or losing their inheritance those are some of the current concerns that I've seen in the past. Another concern that comes up is if the institutionalized spouse in the nursing home survives and the community spouse dies before the institutionalized spouse. Well, you wouldn't expect that to occur if, if the, the health of the institutionalized spouse was worse off than the community spouse. But here's the phenomenon. Once the institutionalized spouse starts getting good care, they tend to start to thrive, and maybe the community spouse had been stressed out for such a long time that their heart gives out. And so it's a a good time to ponder whether um, the the community spouse should have gotten care sooner or help with the care sooner so that there wasn't so much stress on the heart. The community spouse must get breaks and rest. And so if you're listening to this and you know somebody who is uh, stressed out because they're caring for a loved one, you might want to try and help them find resources so that they can take a break and get some rest. Okay, I want to say something about children Medicaid. Um, the children Medicaid programs are often within reach of some of those in our community because it's totally income-based and it's not asset-based. So if you're within sometimes 300% of federal poverty level, a family can get qualified. So uh, if if your family is struggling to pay medical costs for the children, you might look for resources for children's Medicaid. While I was learning about children's Medicaid, I learned about uh, supported decision-making agreements. And that's an agreement where a person who has a disability um, can cognitively understand the agreement and the arrangement where they appoint somebody to help make decisions, not make the decisions themselves, but help make the decision. So um, on the disability rights website, it says the law does not establish a specific level of capacity required for an individual to enter into a supported decision-making agreement. The individual should have the ability to understand that he or she needs assistance in making particular decisions to choose a trusted friend or trusted family member 
to be his or her supporter and be able to make decisions with the help of that supporter. Okay, some of the issues that have been coming up with regarding uh, border immigration is that uh, the Medicaid programs are only available for citizens, and if uh, these immigrants um, become seriously ill or injured and suffer long-term disabilities, uh, the Texas Medicaid program is not going to be available to them. So I don't know what's going to happen. There's bound to be some, a few, a handful, or a few thousand or a few ten thousand uh, of these immigrants coming in, claiming asylum, and staying in the U.S. for six to eight to ten years, waiting for their opportunity to uh, get a decision about whether their asylum is approved or not. Uh, It's bound to happen that some of these people are going to become disabled and incapacitated and and need some level of care. How they'll pay for it, I don't know. It's an issue that's coming up. Okay, I want to talk about Medicaid Estate Recovery Program. There's two times that we need to talk about the financial qualification requirements um, in a person's life or in in this period in, in their history. One is when they need to get qualified, when they're moving into the nursing home. That's one time period when we need a snapshot of the income that's coming in and the assets that they have saved up. Another period of time is after they pass away. The Medicaid Estate Recovery Program is a uh, started as a federal law that required the states to have a program uh, as a condition for getting Medicaid funding from the federal government. So the money comes from the federal government, but the states are free to develop programs and requirements as they see fit. There's guidelines, um, but there's a lot of variations that the states have gone by. And in Texas, their Medicaid estate recovery program was one of the last ones to get implemented because the legislators were so afraid of getting voted out of office. So what the recovery program means is that after the Medicaid applicant and recipient passes away, the state of Texas is going to ask for reimbursement to pay for, to reimburse the state for the expenses that the state paid for nursing home care, for uh, co-pays and premiums and uh, medical care, nursing home care and the like. And so uh, because the state of Texas was afraid of getting voted out of office, because the legislators in the state of Texas were afraid of getting voted out of office, uh, they made this program with some um, lenient terms where uh, some people would not be subject to the program or they bypass the program's requirements. The only people that lose their home to the state of Texas through the Medicaid estate recovery program are those that don't know a lawyer because uh, lawyers are sufficiently knowledgeable and trained about this issue that they should be able to help the person avoid Medicaid estate recovery. 
at least one attorney that I talked to at the program in Abilene said she felt like the state of Texas had never followed their own rules and none of their claims were valid. Even if that is the case, um, the state of Texas is getting reimbursed by some people. Um, If you see a lawyer before the person passes away, it's much easier than if you wait until after the person passes away. But you're definitely going to need a lawyer to get that resolved. I wanted to talk about some of the people that are involved in helping a Medicaid applicant file an application because there are some people out there that are doing this illegally. They're non-lawyers. There's a statute that says that uh, non-lawyers cannot get paid for filing a Medicaid application. Let's see here. It's a crime, a Class A misdemeanor, for a non-lawyer to get paid to submit a Medicaid application. Non-lawyers are probably charging more than a lawyer would, so a non-lawyer may not be acting in your best interest. Am I running out of time? Oh, okay, I have a couple of minutes. All right, I wanted to say something about what Jesus would say about elderly or older people. And so um, the time that this came up in his life when he was uh, on the cross, hanging there, dying, and he looked over and noticed his mother was standing nearby. The The disciple whom he loved, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. That's from the book of John, chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. So I thought that that was a great uh, way to show that Jesus cared about older people. Well, that's all for today. That's all the time I have. Uh, Tune in Sunday afternoons at 4.30 or Saturday mornings at 11 o'clock. I'll talk to you later. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.